All right, uh, everybody have an outline. Anybody need an outline tonight? If you need an outline, if you just raise your hand. Hey, anybody at all need an outline? Make sure everybody has one. All right, good. We are in Revelation chapter number 11 tonight. Revelation chapter number 11. We are moving forward quickly uh, through the book of Revelation, and uh, uh, we are, are making our, our way to it. We're going to start right in the top of your outline. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about the temple, the two witnesses, and the seventh trumpet, the temple, the two witnesses, and the seventh trumpet. Let me put a disclaimer uh, on this lesson before we begin. Um, chapter number 11 is probably one of the most difficult chapters in the book of Revelation to interpret. And so tonight, as we go through the book of Revelation, chapter number 11, I want you to understand that there are a lot of things in this chapter uh, that are unknown. And uh, we will try our best to put the puzzle pieces together, but the honest truth is, is that um, it's limited in the amount of puzzle pieces that you can put together. And so what we just have to do is we have to do as uh, we do with any portion of the Word of God. We just have to take it for what it's for. There's a lot of things that we'd be able to read into it, a lot of things that we can hypothesize, a lot of things that we can say, well, it might be this and it might be that and it could be this and it could be that. But the honest truth is, is that does not really benefit us as a Christian. Uh, we just need to take the Word of God for what it's for and, what it, and, and, and compare it to each other, sometimes compare it to historical documents, um, but at the same time know that there are some things, as the Word of God says, that are just a mystery. And so as we look at chapter number 11, just keep that in mind. Thus far, right at the top of your outline, we have studied through the sixth trumpet, which is the second of the three woes in Revelation chapter 8 and verse number 13. The first woe transpired at the sounding of trumpet 5, as the fallen star of the enemy was given the key to the bottomless pit. We talked about this a few weeks ago, and how that the enemy, Satan, was given the key to the bottomless pit. And uh, we hypothesized and we thought through the process based upon the Word of God that it was, in fact, Satan that was given this key uh, as one of great power. And he was given that key to the bottomless pit. And we know when the bottomless pit was open that literally, like locusts, came out of the bottomless pit and, be pit and began to uh, infiltrate the earth, and we said that those locust-like beings were nothing more than demons, and uh, we found out that they too caused the, uh, a, a portion of the human race to be killed off, and we also found out that they tortured a portion uh, of the human race. At the sounding of the sixth trumpet in chapter 9 and verse number 14, four angels were loosed, um, and uh, I'm going to have to read this tonight because for some reason that screen back there is off. So you'll just have to excuse me for a second here. Um, at the sounding of the sixth trumpet, four angels were loose, who through the army of 200 million were given the power to kill one third of the world's population. And so we know that at that, that time, we talked about that last week, the, 200, the army of 200 million were given the power to kill one third of the world's population. Coupled with the one-fourth killed at the opening of the fourth seal, at least one-half of the world's population has now been killed. So uh, uh, now we're at chapter number 10, and we know that one-half of the world's population has been annihilated based upon the seals. Chapter 10 is a parenthetical chapter describing the angel in the bittersweet book, and we talked about that last week, that contained the rest of the message that John was to deliver. Now, chapter 11 continues this parenthetical section and is one of the most difficult chapters to interpret. And so that's kind of the disclaimer there for you. So number one, uh, the measuring of the temple. 
the measuring of the temple. Chapter number 11, we're going to start reading in verse number 1. We're just going to read the first two verses uh, for these thoughts uh, here at the measuring of the temple. And there was given me a reed, I'm in chapter number 11 and verse number 1, and there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and then that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. So here we have in chapter number eleven, verses one and two, we have John that we have. Excuse me, we have God giving John the instructions to measure the temple, to measure the temple. In this chapter, John is no longer just a witness to the happenings. He is instructed to measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. So now John is becoming, he, he was a spectator, he was a witness to everything that was taking place up to chapter number 11, and now he's asked to get involved. God has asked him to get involved now with the things that are going on, and he asked him to measure the temple. Now, some have tried to spiritualize verses 1 and 2, um, but this creates serious problems. For example, uh, some people say that the temple that is being referred to in chapter number 11, verse number 1, is the church. Well, the question remains is how can uh, John measure an invisible church? And when we say invisible, we mean that the fact that the church is not a building. The church is what? A body of believers. That's right. A body of believers. We make up the church. So how can John measure something that's literally innumerable uh, because the, the, at the salvation of a soul, they become the church? And so it doesn't, it doesn't measure up there. And then it, the question remains is, who are the worshipers that are mentioned? In chapter uh, number 11, in verse number 1, there was given me a reed, uh, like unto a rod, and the angels stood, rise, measure the temple of God, and the altar, and then that worship therein. Who are the ones that are the worshipers? What does the altar represent? And so people have tried to spiritualize it. They've tried to compare it. Well, the truth of the matter is that I don't believe, uh, based upon my study and the things that I know, that this is a spiritualized brand. I think that, in fact, on the other hand, it seems to be a literal approach. Uh, and you see that in your outline there. It, it seems obvious a literal approach is intended here. As mentioned in chapter 7, God is not finished with the Jews. The events described in this chapter make the location of events unmistakable, the temple in Jerusalem. And so to me, it makes sense that this is not a, a spiritualized aspect, but this is actually something that's literal. Now, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, those that would possibly be saved during the tribulation. And we talked about the 144,000 that are going to evangelize during the tribulation. Who are the 144,000? Say it again. Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, right? I mean, it was listed for us. Who are they going to evangelize? Their own people. They're going to evangelize the Jews. Now, we talked about that those that are uh, born during the tribulation, we talked about that the anomaly with the Gentiles is the only thing that we're not 100% sure of is those that have not heard the gospel, whether or not they can be saved during the tribulation. But the evangelization that's happening of the 144,000 is happening to the Jews. 
And so obviously, now we've only extended ourselves a couple chapters, God is not done with the Jews yet. And the Jews, they recognize the temple. You, you go throughout all of history, and the Jews always recognize one thing. They always recognize the temple. So this is a literal moment where John is measuring a literal temple. And the only place that this could happen, and it's unmistakable throughout Scripture, is the temple in Jerusalem. Therefore, the Jewish temple must have been rebuilt. And biblically speaking, there is only one place in the world where it can be rebuilt, according to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And the Bible says, Then Solomon began, excuse me, then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at where? Jerusalem in where? Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father, in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And he began to build in the second day of the second month in the fourth year of the rain. So we know that Jerusalem is the place where the temple uh, would have to be rebuilt. So here's the question. Why is it necessary the temple in Jerusalem be rebuilt to fulfill prophecy concerning the return of Christ? Why is it necessary that the temple needs to be rebuilt? Well, I want you to take your Bibles, if you will, with me. I thought about putting it on the screen, but you know, sometimes it's good just to turn your Bibles there. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. Why is it important, why is it necessary that the temple in Jerusalem be rebuilt to fulfill the prophecy of the return of Christ? You realize that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And so when we look at Scripture, when we look at studying something uh, as difficult as Revelation chapter 11, the best thing that we can do is draw from other places in the Word of God uh, to find out truth. 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter number 2, starting in verse number 1. The Bible says this, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letters as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there be, uh, excuse me, except there come a what? A falling away first. And that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. You ready? Here it comes. Who opposeth, who's the son of perdition? The Antichrist. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped. Here it is. So that he is God. What does it say? Sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So, we're not there yet, but we're going to hit the fast forward button and then we'll hit the rewind button, all right? The fast forward button is this. There is coming an antichrist onto the scene. You understand that, right? The antichrist is going to come onto the scene. He is going to claim to be who? He's going to claim to be God. And he is going to make everyone think that he is God. As a matter of fact, by the time we're done here tonight, his first, um, his first moment will have arrived with the two witnesses um, as he murders them. 
And uh, uh, we find out that the Antichrist is going to show up on the scene. He's going to be uh, a light. He's going to try to emulate God. As a matter of fact, he's going to try to emulate God also in the temple. But the Bible says here in our passage in 2 Thessalonians, the way that the Israelites, the Jews, are going to know that God is who God says he is, is because he will be in his temple. That's why it's so important that the temple is rebuilt to fulfill the prophecy of God. All right? Um, so that's why it's necessary. Now, it is clear in the New Testament, I'm back to your outline, that during the Great Tribulation, there will be a literal Jewish temple in Jerusalem. For it to be rebuilt in its original place, and, and, and we're going to talk some history here, the Dome of the Rock, which now stands there, would have to be destroyed. And this would bring the wrath of over 400 million Muslims upon the nation of Israel. The Dome of the Rock is where the temple has to be rebuilt, because it is the place. Now, the question is, how is that ever going to happen? How is it that the temple, that the Dome of the Rock is going to be removed and that the temple is going to take over? If I had about, I don't know, six, six weeks, eight hours a day with you, uh, we might be able to trudge through that whole Dome of the Rock. There, there are a lot of uh, commentaries, there are a lot of um, documentaries, um, especially when you delve into uh, the Muslim uh, uh, history and the Muslim world. And, but the bottom line is this. This is what we need to know. And, and this is why I believe this verse is so important in the Bible. The Bible says this, greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. If God wants something to happen, will it happen? Prove it, Pastor. Sure, no problem. The book of Genesis. What do you mean it's going to rain? We've never seen rain. What do you mean there's going to be water that's falling out of the sky? That is not possible. The water comes from the dew. It comes from the ground. It's not possible that water will come from the sky. Noah says it's very possible they say to Noah, what are you building? I'm building a boat. What is a boat? I feel like I'm watching Finding Nemo, right? <laughs> I know some of you went there. You don't have to tell me, all right? Uh, but what's a boat? Noah builds it. He preaches and preaches and preaches. And finally he gets on the boat and God shuts the door. And guess what starts happening? It starts raining. God can do whatever God needs to do to fulfill prophecy. What do, you mean, what do you mean this guy, this man, what do you mean this man was born of a virgin? How is that possible? What do you mean this man will go to a cross and he'll die and he'll be buried and three days later he'll rise again? That's not possible with God. All things are possible. Matter of fact, we can go back and look 
at uh, Jewish history. Today, the old city of Jerusalem is entirely in the hands of the Israelis, and they will never give it up. But the temple area where the Dome of the Rock stands is still in Muslim hands. So uh, there, there's a battle there. There's a war going on. If you don't believe me, just look at the news. How then could they ever rebuild the Jewish temple in its original place? Well, may I remind you that no one, no one ever thought before 1948 that the Jews would again be a nation and have Jerusalem as their capital. Boy, if you could go back and look at history, the Jews will, will never, they'll never be a nation again. It'll, it'll, it'll never happen. And here it is, 1948, and it all happens again. I, I, I don't dare, dare ask if anybody was alive in 1948. There we go. I heard it. Um, but this is what I know. I, I, I've done enough biblical history and, and, and world history to know that in 1948, when Jerusalem became a nation, if you were a pastor at that time, this is what you were saying. Well, the Lord's coming back. Look what just happened. The Lord is on his way. Repent now because the Lord is on his way. And I'm telling you right now that the day, and I don't know how it's all going to happen, but the day that the Dome of the Rock is taken out of Jerusalem, I'm telling you, people are going to realize how powerful God really is. We serve a powerful, powerful God. How's it going to happen? No one knows but we just know it's going to happen. John's measurement of the temple seems to be a symbolic action for claiming or staking um, a possession. And this corresponds well, and we don't really have time to read it. I would circle it in your notes and go home and read Zechariah chapter number 2, verses 1 through 13. Uh, it, it, it is literally a good description of what we're talking about with John's measurement of the temple and literally them claiming or staking um, the possession now, the outer court was not to be measured. Um, the outer court was not to be measured. So John only measured the holy place and the holy of holies. The explanation is given that this would be under the control of the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot 40 and 2 months. Now, it appears that the beginning of this 42 month or three and a half year period, the sacrifices will stop. And the temple will be desecrated by the world ruler, putting an idol there and setting himself up as a god to be worshipped. So here in this 42 month or this three and a half year period, when the Gentiles uh, would be given the control of the outer court um, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot 40 and two months, seems to be the fact that the temple will be desecrated by the world ruler, speaking of the Antichrist, and literally putting an idol there, and we're going to find out what his name is a little later on, and setting himself up, up as a god to be worshipped. Because as you know, he has got to represent God. Why, and let's go back for a moment, why does this Antichrist have to represent himself as God to the Jews? Okay, to get that he would have followed him, why else? Good. Because the Messiah has never come for them. 
in their mind, they're still looking for the Messiah to come. And so when the Antichrist arises up onto the scene, they are going to latch on to that as the Messiah. When in, and, and, and as he sets up his, if you want to use the term, and I use it very loosely, kingdom, um, over this three and a half year period, um, he's literally setting himself up to be a god, little g, that's to be worshipped. Now, uh, the reference to the Gentiles treading upon the city of Jerusalem seems to imply not only the desecration of the temple, but also the severe persecution of the Jews. And we'll discuss that uh, a little later on in Revelation chapter number 13. Now, I know that that was a lot of information, and I know that there's a, there a lot there. And, and in those two little verses, when we talk about the measuring of the temple and how it correlates with the Old Testament, but it's important that we lay good foundations to understand that this, what John was doing is John was, was setting up uh, the kingdom. God, John was seeing the, maybe I should say it this way, God, John was seeing the setting up of the kingdom, the setting up of the temple, and the preparation uh, for the Antichrist, and then the preparation for God to come in and take over um, as the ultimate king of kings and the Lord of lords. So, John was commissioned to measure the temple, all right? Number two, the two witnesses. The two witnesses. We're going to go back to Revelation chapter number 11. And uh, we're going to start reading in verse number 3. Revelation chapter number 11 and verse number 3. The Bible says this, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and smite the earth with all the plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, that's an important phrase, and when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three, and a half, or three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. And after the three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice come up from heaven, saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted. And God gave glory, or excuse me, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. So here we have in chapter number 11, verses 3, 3 through 14, we have the two witnesses. The question that everybody has, who are the two witnesses? Everybody wants to know who the two witnesses are. Well, I told you before we ever started this lesson that I would not speculate 
and because there's really no reason to speculate. The thing that we need to know is that there are two witnesses that God is going to dispatch um, to the earth, and they will have a testimony, and they will not be slain until their testimony has been completed. And uh, then once their testimony has been completed, they will be slain. They will be put in the street for all the world to see for three and a half days. And after the three and a half days is over, the Bible says the Spirit of God will come upon them and give them life. And up from the grave they will arise, or from the street. And they will stand before the people. And then the Bible says that after they stand before the people, that God will tell them, as he did the church, In Revelation chapter number 4 and verse number 1, come up hither. Interesting that God would use that verbiage again. And so that's the two witnesses. So let's kind of look at who they are and uh, what they are doing. In chapter 11, verse number 3, John says two witnesses would serve as God's prophets for 1260 days or three and a half years. The identity of these two prophets is not disclosed in this passage some think that they are Elijah and Moses, but we do not really know. And I put that out there for you because uh, many of you probably have heard uh, talk about the two witnesses and may have even heard that they are Elijah and Moses. That many of them speculate that because of what the passage refers to. And uh, we'll see that in just a moment. But there is no definitive evidence that that is in fact who it will be. The witnesses will be able to perform miracles such as destroying with fire anyone who would harm them. I've talked to the Lord about that. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> um, I'm telling you, uh, you know, as a Christian, we are literally a spectator to all this that's going on because we believe in a pre-tribulational wrath. We believe that at, in Revelation chapter number 4, verse number 1, Jesus called him up hither. And uh, that was the church, and that was the end of the church age. And so during the tribulation, we will not be there. But to watch these events unfold, first of all, most of it's going to be horrific. But when these two witnesses come, this is one of those things that I, I kind of am very intrigued about. Because whoever the two witnesses are, they are going to have the ultimate power of God within them. I mean, God is going to literally give them all kinds of freedom. To the very point, to start with, that anyone um, who hurts them, they can uh, uh, destroy them with fire. They can just annihilate them right on the spot. Now, what this tells me about these two witnesses is that they are responsible people. That they, they will not just go around annihilating a bunch of people. Uh, there actually have to be caused harm, literal harm to them. They, they literally have to feel like that their life may be at stake in order for this to happen. So they are responsible uh, uh, individuals. Like Elijah in the Old Testament, they can shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. So God gives them the power that if so need be, that it won't rain. Now for the first few days, that'll be okay. Rain, it won't matter. But if rain, if we do not see rain for an extended period of time, what happens? Drought happens. We have issues with getting food. We have issues with, with being able to, uh, uh, um, to be able to have fluids for our own selves. And so he can shut, the, these two witnesses have the power to shut off the rain, just like Elijah did. And they also have the power, like Moses, 
Um, they have the power over the waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth. Look at this. With all the plagues, look what it says, as often as they will. So just like Moses, when he went to Pharaoh and said, Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh refused. And, 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 and Moses said, well, this is the judgment, the frogs and the lice and, and the locusts and so forth and so on. They will have that same power. That is why, because of the power that they have, is why people allude to the fact that the two witnesses will be Elijah and Moses. But you understand that God can give that power to anybody. I mean, he can't. So we're not, again, not positive who these two witnesses are, but they have power uh, when they need it. Because they cannot, the reason they have this power, let me make this very clear, the reason that they have this power is because they cannot be killed until when? Till their testimony or their witness is done. That's exactly right. God is protecting them. Remember, God sealed the 144,000, right? He didn't mark them, he sealed them. Just like he seals the Christian. And, and we are sealed until the day of redemption, meaning until the day that we pass from this life to next, or we are resurrected in the, uh, in the rapture. And, and so we are sealed, uh, the 144,000 are sealed, and these two witnesses, they've got all kind of firearm protection. They can do whatever they need in order to stay alive so that they can give their testimony. In verse 7, we are introduced to the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit and kills the two witnesses. And we've, uh, uh, we've reiterated this several times, that this will not happen uh, until they have finished their testimony. It will not happen until they finish their testimony. Th- this, is, um, this is a great comforting thought. Um, you would not believe this, but a few years ago, um, I, there was a man in our church uh, where I was an assistant pastor at, and uh, our senior pastor had gone out of town. He uh, was killed in a car accident. And our pastor was on a cruise, and he was gone for many days. We couldn't get a hold of him. And so they asked me to do the funeral. The family was just broken, I mean, torn up. They had two small children, um, wife, all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, you know, for me, I had never, I, I'd done funerals. I've done many funerals, but not a tragic funeral such as this. Uh, the, the, the man was only 31 years old. And uh, I began to pray about how, what would God have me to say at this funeral? I mean, I, I, it was really heavy on my heart. And so I began to pray about that. And would you believe that God led me to this passage of Scripture for a funeral? And I told the Lord, Lord, I, I don't, I, th- this is odd. And he kept telling me, Lee, This is where you need to pull it from. And my application was this. These two witnesses could not be killed until their testimony was complete. Can I tell you something tonight? That when your testimony is complete, God will take you home. When your testimony is done, not before and not after, but when your testimony is done, then God says your time is up. I heard so many times growing up, boy, they, their life was taken too soon. Boy, that was a tragedy and that was terrible. Their life was just taken out. And you know what the truth is, is that tragedies do happen. 
But I want to remind you of something. That God knows the very beginning of life, and God knows the very end of life. And when God is done with us, He takes us home. You say, what's the application, Pastor? Don't ever question the timing of God. Because I'm telling you, with these two witnesses, they are going to be safe until God is done with them. Now, when I got done with that funeral service, I remember walking away thinking, my, my only prayer was is that somebody during that would be comforted. And I never forget the wife of the husband. The funeral was over. I said amen. And I do just like I do here. I got down from that stage and I walked over to the door where everybody would be exiting. Before I could get to the door, the wife had a hold of the back of my shirt. And then she grabbed my shoulder and it was a grab like I've never been grabbed before. And I turned around and when I did, she almost just fell to the ground and I grabbed a hold of her. And this is what she said to me. She said, Lee, I've been waiting for somebody to tell me that it's okay. She said, and now you tell me that God was just done with him. Her name was Julie. And I said, Julie, listen to me. I said, yes, God is done with him. But may I remind you of something? God is not done with you. And like I've told so many people, it's now time for Julie to live her life through his life and live a testimony of victory because of the testimony that she has to share. And I know I'm speaking to many here tonight that have faced similar tragedies in their life. May I remind you of something? That their testimony continues and that you should live your life through them as a testimony of what God is doing in their life. God never takes anyone home too soon. He always takes them home on time. All right? That was a side note. Like the murder of Christ, their deaths will not be a tragic accident. They will have finished their ministry. This is the first mention of the beast that kills them, but he is mentioned more than 30 times in the remainder of the book. The killing is apparently his first act and it will win him worldwide support. It will win him wo- worldwide support. After they are murdered, their bodies are put on display for all to see for three and a half days. And the world rejoiced at this display. What does this remind you of? There we go. The crucifixion. All the world said what? Crucify him. Release Barabbas and crucify him. And they put him on display for all the world to see as they literally killed him. The Bible says that he went in a tomb for how many days? Three. And on the third day, what did God do? He breathed life back into him. And out of that, out of that grave he came. And, and here we have the two witnesses that have, have spent three and a half years doing what God had told them to do. And now they were murdered and all the world saw it. And all the world's rejoicing just as they did at the death of Jesus Christ. Why were they rejoicing? Why were they excited? The Bible tells us that it was because that the, the prophets troubled them. 
You know why they were troubled by the prophets? Because they were telling the truth. That's right. It's that conviction. After their bodies had been on display for three and a half days for all the world to see, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet. And the Bible says, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. Now, you know me. I'm a very visual person, okay? You know this. Can you imagine for a moment that here are these two witnesses literally laying in the street and you're walking by and you're, you're rejoicing. The Bible says that they were rejoicing so much that they were giving gifts to one another. It was like a party. And they were so excited about what was happening. Can you imagine being in the middle of New York City and two people that have passed away are laying in the middle of the street and they've been laying there for three and a half days and we've been partying because of it and all of a sudden they stand to their feet. I don't know about you, but I'd be afraid. As a matter of fact, you might find me in New Jersey in the next five minutes. I'm not hanging around. The Bible says that God breathed into them. Guess who the only other person God breathed into? Adam. God breathed into them the breath of life, just as he breathed it into Adam. And great fear fell upon them which saw them. As the two witnesses are resurrected, a voice from heaven calls them up. Now, so here you are. You're standing, and and I'm just using New York City just because you go to crowds there. You're standing there, and all of a sudden, these two men rise up. And the next thing you hear is a voice out of heaven. And the voice from heaven says, come up hither. And then all of a sudden, boom, they're gone. What a sight that is going to be. The Bible says they went up into a cloud in view of all of their enemies. In view of all their enemies. Immediately after the resurrection and the ascension of the two witnesses, another great event occurs. You're going to see a pattern. We've already seen it. When great events occur, normally what follows is an earthquake. An earthquake in which the tenth part of the city fell, and were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. So here we have an earthquake that happens, a tenth part of the city has fallen, and seven thousand men are killed. Now the identity of the remnant is unclear. But it could be some uh, may be converted because of the events that are taking place. And others just simply recognize God's power but do not turn to him in repentance. Whatever the case, this ends the interlude and the sixth trumpet, which is the second woe. And now we move on to the third woe, which is the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet. Chapter number 11, starting in verse number 15, through the end of the chapter. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders, elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power, and thou hast, or excuse me, and hast reigned. 
And the nations are angry, and thy wrath is come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants and prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings, and voices, and thunderings, oh, there it is, and an earthquake. And great hail. The seventh trumpet. At the sounding of the seventh trumpet comes the announcement. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Somewhere I read that in the Bible. I think it was in the book of Isaiah. And he shall reign forever and ever. As a matter of fact, I think somebody even wrote some songs about that. And he shall reign forever and ever. And here in Revelation chapter number 11, the seventh trumpet is sounded. And what's happening? God is taking over. He's saying, listen, the kingdoms of this world that have been under the control of the enemy are going to become mine. They are now the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he, meaning God, shall reign forever and ever. He, God, is going to win. He's going to win. There's no question about it. Other events must transpire before this act is realized. But the victory has already been won. By the way, can I tell you something tonight? The victory has already been won. Can I tell you that the victory was won when Jesus rose from the grave? The victory was won. There there was never really, there's never even really a battle because the victory has already been won. What do we have to do? You say, Pastor, I'm fighting the battle all the time. I understand that, but the victory is already won. You just have to go claim it. And you claim it through Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says we are more than conquerors or more than conquerors in chapter 11 verse 16 the the 24 elders which sat before the um before god on their seats fell upon their faces and worshiped god they've done that before they praised him for his great power for judging the wicked and for giving rewards to his servants the prophets and to the saints and them that fear him this chapter began with the measuring of the temple on earth But in verse 19, the temple of God was opened in heaven. I find this very intriguing. The temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. What is the ark of his testament? Somebody just said it. The ark of the covenant. That's right. The ark of his testament is the ark of the covenant. And uh, we know the ark of the covenant from the Old Testament. The fact that there is a throne room of God in heaven which was the pattern for the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament has already been discussed. The focus in this verse, however, is not on the temple itself, but on the Ark of His Testament. The Bible says that literally the temple is open and the Ark of His Testament is revealed. The Ark of the Covenant was the only piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies. And the only people that were, the only person that was allowed in the Holy of Holies was who? The high priest. The only piece of furniture that was in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. 
If you read, and, and, and I'm running out of time very quickly, but if you read in the Old Testament, there were a chosen people that could carry the Ark of the Covenant. If you touched the Ark of the Covenant and you were not chosen, what happened to you? You died, that's right. If the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and sin was in his life and there was things between him and God, what happened to him? He died. That's why he wore bells around the bottom of his robe. Because if the bells stopped jingling, they would pull him out. God was serious about this. And now, in heaven, there is a tabernacle, a temple that is, that is literally uh, uh, as was in the Old Testament. And the Bible says that it is revealed and the, and the Ark of the Covenant is given, the only piece of furniture is revealed, the only piece of furniture that's in the Holy of Holies. The Shekinah cloud of glory, which was the, in, uh, the, the invisible sign of God's presence, rested upon the mercy seat that covered the Ark. The mercy seat was, was uh, covering the Ark of the Covenant. Communion with God was dependent upon the blood-stained mercy seat. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, there were three things. There were the tables of the law, which signified God's righteousness. There was Aaron's rod that budded, which symbolized the power of God to resurrect life. And the third thing that was in there is the golden pot of manna, which showed God's essence. Those were the three things that were in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, according to 2 Chronicles chapter 5 and verse number 10, and I know I'm going quickly because I'm out of time. By the time of Solomon's temple, the ark only contained the tablets of the law. It is presumed that the ark was destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar burned the temple in 586 B.C. Most people believe that uh, the ark of the covenant was destroyed uh, when Nebuchadnezzar burned the temple. And so, therefore, the only thing that, uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 5 and verse number 10, that is contained in the, in the Ark of the Covenant were the tablets of the law. Now, it is also assumed there was no Ark in the second temple, since there is no mention of it when Cyrus was commissioned the rebuilding of the temple and sent back all of its vessels in Ezra chapter number 1, verses 1 through 11. I, I don't have time to go through all this, but you, you look at these passages of Scripture, the book of Ezra, you'll find out that Cyrus was commissioned to rebuild the temple and all of its vessels were sent back to the temple. But in Ezra chapter number 1, we do not find the Ark of a Covenant being put in the new temple. Though the earthly temple will be desecrated by the peace, or by the beast, its counterpart in heaven is displayed in Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, to reflect God's power, to reflect his holiness, and to reflect his majesty. Also, the opening of heaven to show the Ark of the Covenant to the Christians on earth, who are probably primarily Jews at the time, assures them of God's love and his presence during the time of severe trials and persecutions by the beast. This was a comfort to those that are on earth. In chapter 11, verse number 19, much like the scenes in Revelation chapter number 4, verse 5, and Revelation chapter 8, and verse number 5, John sees and hears lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Apparently, this all refers to things that are happening on the earth. Just as there is thundering lightning before the storm hits, these are warnings of the storm of judgment about to fall on the earth. The truth is this, and I'm done. It is so sad that when crisis or catastrophe strikes, people, even Christians sometimes, turn to God for help. But after the circumstances have ceased or have passed, they go back to the same way of life as before. 
when we see through the book of Revelation that these people experienced so many trials and tribulations and things that literally annihilated people, annihilated things, annihilated nature, and yet still after all that they never turned to God. It just makes you realize that even more today than ever, we need to go and tell. We need to go and tell. People need the Lord. People need to turn from their wicked ways and seek God's face. Because what we're studying in the book of Revelation is all very true. And it will all happen. And the only way to prevent it The only way not to be a part of it is to find yourself accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior so that you, as all the rest of the church, can be resurrected out in Revelation chapter 4, verse number 1, because for everyone else it's going to be too late. What are we doing? The question is this. What are we doing with the knowledge that we're being given? Are we just taking it as knowledge or are we taking it as a burden to put it into practice? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, we love you. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you that, Lord, we can glean and learn things from your word. And Lord, even though sometimes things are very hard to understand, even though that we do not have complete clarity on certain things, you've given us what you want us to know and to have. And Lord, they say, the the saying is knowledge is power, but knowledge is only power when we put it into practice. And so God, I pray that our hearts are being stirred and our our, our hearts are being burdened for people that need you, for, for the lost of this world. And God, I pray that you'll encourage us and strengthen us. And Lord, I pray that we'll be a witness to those around us that need Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. Uh, But most of all, we thank you for loving us. Thank you for allowing us to be here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful rest of your evening. And I look forward to seeing you on Sunday.